Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Kiss My Zeitgeist, the culture show that focuses on mockery manner and no other aspects of culture. I'm your host, Lindsay Sharman, and today in the studio we have composer and sound artist Lawrence Owen. Hi, Lindsay. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. Welcome to the show, Lawrence. Did you travel far? I travelled 10 metres to our garden studio. Wow. Okay, let's talk normally now. So what this is, is I'm going to interview you about the Mockery soundtrack you're about to release on Bandcamp. That's right, and by the time this goes out, it will be available to buy and listen to on Bandcamp. Yeah, and I mean, I already know everything because we work together very closely and we live together and we discuss everything in excruciating detail, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to pretend I don't know what you're going to say. Cool. I should add as well, if you want to hear me talking about writing, I really struggle to do that verbally. So I've set up a blog on our coffee page. So if you go to ko-fi.com forward slash longcatmedia and then you go to the posts tab uh, you can read entries about how I use bibliomancy to get myself out of a writing rut sometimes Uh, do characters have to be likeable even the murderous ones you know just musings on writing yeah you're posing some very interesting questions on there and a lot of people are joining in which is really nice yeah really nice so come and join the discussion okay let's let's get on with the questions so tell me (laughs) How do you put an album together? (laughs) Well, uh, in this instance, I go through all of the music files for each episode. So I'll listen to all of the music that I've composed over the whole season of Mockery Manor Season 3. And often I'll I'll do this very quickly and I can't necessarily remember what I've done where. So it's a bit of a learning, a bit of a discovery experience for me. We're both guilty of that, aren't we? Yeah. We do it and then it instantly just falls out of our head. Yeah, and every time I listen to it, I go, oh yeah, I remember doing that. But it is nice to remind myself of, of just how much music you write over the course of a whole season. And yeah. How many tracks is it? Well, on the album, there are 33 tracks. Okay. Um, and that's whittled down. There's quite a lot that I didn't include because although it works in the context of the episode, I didn't think it was interesting enough to put on the album. So this is the zingiest version of the soundtrack? This that- is kind of all of the bits that I think, yeah, you could listen to that on its own and it's and it's engaging and exciting and fun. So what what kind of things did you leave out? Well, quite a lot of the things that I left out were the bits of music that are appropriate for audio drama writing, but aren't that interesting on on their own. So a lot of that is going to be very ambient drones, kind of creepy drones, evolving soundscapes, things that sit underneath dialogue really well, but are perhaps a little 
flat when they're when they're heard just on their own and i've included some of the more interesting examples of that on the album because some of it is quite nice and it functions like ambient music but there's quite a lot of instances where it'll just be a kind of sustained note and then some little twinkly things that that mirror the mockery theme tune but i thought maybe we don't need too much of that on the album now ah, that brings me on to my next question actually so you employ mind tricks don't you you play mind tricks on the audience with your sound magic well i think that's one of the the things that music can do so well is accompany and and support the dialogue without necessarily pulling focus you don't want it to pull focus you want it to just amplify what's being said and and the action happening without you even necessarily being aware that there's much going on in the music the be- the best scores kind of fade into the background a bit and you would notice if they weren't there but ideally you shouldn't be listening to them you should just be going wow this scene is really exciting and fun so when do you remove all music and sound design from a moment in a scene because you employ silence as well sometimes as well yes sometimes if you if you're having a character who's in a sort of state of shock or having a, a realization like uh, the moment JJ realizes at the end what she has to do. Oh yeah, we should say uh, there are going to be spoilers in this chat. Yeah, we're going to talk freely and openly about all of the ins and outs of the plot of season three, including who done it, <laughs> yeah, various revelations along the way, and key sort of set pieces and moments. Yeah. It? So if you've saved this up for a binge or something, but you think, oh, I'll just listen to this interview first, don't do that. Yeah, no, that's not the way. No, no, no. So yeah, so uh, when JJ realizes at the end, that's it. I have no choice. I'm going to have to kill Fennec. <laughs> um, we have all of the sound sort of blur. We can hear all of the other characters uh, frantically arguing and bickering and and so on, and that sort of blurs away into almost nothingness while we're just in JJ's head for a moment. I'm actually going to push back on that because JJ doesn't think she has no choice. She has taken a choice oh she has taken a choice she's yes. in fact chosen to choose she says i'm taking control <laughs> yeah yeah because her choices have been taken away from her for so long mm. that this is the moment where she feels like yeah okay, it's my turn now and i fact, get to decide the path that we go on now and in fact that's actually what i've called that track at that moment is called i'm taking control because mm. it, it does feel like a real key change and that's reflected in the music all of a sudden this bass guitar is is introduced and, and I haven't really used that sound in this season up until this point. So we get this driving which obviously is in the style of an old spaghetti western, a sort of Ennio Morricone style soundtrack. But it makes this kind of thundering forward motion in the music which sort of mirrors JJ JJ's resolve at that point to go, okay. She's almost like the Terminator at that point. She's nothing's going to stop me. I'm going to do this. What is it about the bass guitar that that does that? That lends itself to that? It's quite a. I mean, it's a very muscular sound. Obviously, it's low and it's punchy, but it doesn't intrude in in terms of frequencies on the kind of frequencies that you need to keep free for dialogue and sound design. Oh yeah. So as a scoring instrument, it's quite useful because it can really thunder quite hard, but it still sits at the bottom, and you can hear everything else really clearly. So what things do sit at kind of dialogue frequency that you well, can't use? Well, uh, you need to be very careful with certain woodwinds. Oboes are really—they're like just perfectly designed to get in the way of speech. So I almost never use oboes in my scoring unless it's completely. 
free of speech. But also some guitars can be can can do that as well. And in fact, this moment where JJ leaves the seance room, walks through the saloon, walks out into the street and walks to the the, the station is one of the rare moments in our shows. We don't do this very often where there's about sort of 10 to 15 seconds with no dialogue. We're normally pretty dialogue heavy. Yeah, yeah, you have to be in audio because obviously no visuals. Uh, but for this particular one, we've set up the visual, which is she's going after Fennec. Yeah. And we need that time to build the tension. And the only thing you can hear from the character is her breathing. But that was quite a rare luxury for me to, in that moment, bring the guitar to the forefront and have it sit in the space sonically where dialogue would normally sit and that's a more filmic thing to do because in films and visual media there's quite often moments where you're just looking at something unfolding there's no characters talking and that gives the composer a bit more of a chance to to fill that frequency Mm. with uh, some more prominent music I don't normally get to do that in audio drama because we're so dialogue heavy that often I have to kind of sit in the background a bit more so in that moment it was quite nice both in terms of my practice and also the the effect that it has on the listener to sort of whoosh up the music a bit and kind of go oh shit's going down at this point yeah you'd get way more opportunity to do that in a visual medium when you like film or tv definitely yeah especially something that's quite actiony where dialogue you know is 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 not that prominent for quite, for long chunks of it. Mm. The, the music is often really doing a lot of the work. Yeah. Incidentally, and I don't know if I said this on the last Kiss My Zeitgeist, but I was once nicknamed the Drunk Oboe. <laughs> Were you? <laughs> yeah. I do not remember you saying that. This is news to me. Yeah, I was acting in Taming of the Shrew, uh, and my director said I sounded like a drunk oboe. Drunk oboe. <laughs> yeah, and he's not wrong. I suppose, uh, <laughs> I, you know... Uh, I would say a drunk core anglais, which is the uh, which is the slightly lower uh, instrument uh, in the oboe family. Ah. That's what I would say. The oboe is very very high. Well, this was some time ago. Oh, so, so you I are think voice my voice is, my voice has dipped. <laughs> so you're now a drunk, over time. drunk core anglais. Yeah, what am I going to be like in twenty years' time? Drunk bassoon. <laughs> you drunk bassoon. That sounds like a Shakespearean insult. That does. Yeah. Thou drunken bassoon. <laughs> Except I don't think it had been invented. So we've gone straight into the final episode, which we do quite a lot, actually, because that's the most... Well, that's the one that we've worked on the most recently. It is, and it's quite often the last episode in our series involves quite a lot of action and quite a lot of music. It's often a bit of a a set piece. Yeah. Yeah, it's the one that takes the longest in post-production, isn't it? Definitely, Mm -hmm. yeah. However, let's let's rewind slightly. Um, I remember we talked about how a real country artist might evolve over a long career. That was one of our earliest conversations mm. when we were coming up with the idea of Clayton being the victim uh, and the fact that Clayton would be a very old man who started making music in his late teens, essentially. Yeah. So Clay's songs reflect this and they come from different parts of his career. So let's go through them as they appear on the album. So you've <laughs> you've front-loaded the album, haven't you, with the songs? All five of the Clayton songs that we hear in the series are at the front of the album because it, it made sense to do that to me. Yeah, so the first is Cactus Lovers. Yeah, which in uh, the timeline of the story, we've got it that that came out in 1952. Yeah, and that's a duet. Yeah, with Christina Bianco. That's, yes. Uh, yeah, the, the amazing vocals of Christina Bianco. Although in this instance, she's not playing her main character, Kirstine. She's playing Tammy Jewell, 
who is Clayton's first wife. Yeah, an older woman. In fact, yes. I made her quite a bit older. You made, her, you made her 96 <laughs> in the year 96. So, Which makes her in her 50s when she was copping off with a, like a 20-year-old Clay. Sure, but hey. It's, Why it's, not? That's real country. Yeah, so let's talk about this style of cactus lovers. Yeah, so this is inspired by sort of early kind of honky-tonk um, performers like, I guess, and not so much Hank Williams, more like that Tennessee Ernie Ford sound. A kind of uh, very much uh, down-home kind of thigh-slapping humour. We made it a lot filthier, though, didn't we? Yeah, I don't think <laughs> they would... Tennessee Ernie Ford doesn't have quite so many euphemisms. They wouldn't have gone that hard in, in 52, yeah. I don't think. But yeah, so the, the, there's uh, some some pretty some pretty saucy lines in in Cactus Lovers. But yeah, it's it's a, a small kind of the kind of band that might be on one of those TV shows from the fifties. Yes, because we decided Clay had his own radio show as well, didn't we? Which is exactly what Tennessee Ernie Ford had. He well, he had a TV hour. Oh, he, didn't he went from radio to TV though? Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So and it was a result, I think, of his uh, excellent radio show. Uh-huh. They knew that they could trust him with a TV show, mm. and the fact that he knew obviously every single country star in the country. <laughs> in the country. So yeah. So that's the we didn't that actually didn't make it into the story in the end, but we were we were sort of imagining that that Clay had a, a TV hour mm. uh, where he would perform songs and chat to people and blah, blah, blah. Actually, it's well worth going onto YouTube to watch Tennessee Ernie Ford chat to various He's uh, great. country legends yeah. back in the day. Mm, and mm. the kind of banter between uh, him and, and some of the the uh, female country and western singers is kind of what we based Cactus Lovers on, I think, isn't Very it? Very much. He did a lot of duets, um, a little bit similar to the sort of June Carter, Johnny Cash vibe, but a bit more kind of, a bit, bit sillier and more maybe theatrical. Um, but the musicianship, the musicianship on those old records is, is really astonishing. They're great, great players. Um, so I've tried my best to sort of fudge <laughs> all of those players. As with all of these songs as well, and all of the music here, I play everything. There are no other musicians on these tracks as well. I just thought that's worth mentioning. Yeah, definitely. And and I remember we were discussing the kind of vocal stylings of this era as well, and the fact that they would have started off in uh, like at barn dances and things like yeah. that. And, so, you know, fairly raucous gigs and things. So their vocals were actually designed... Oh, and they wouldn't have been mic'd. Would they? In the very early days, they wouldn't have been mic'd. And then um, if, it's interesting if you do listen to singers that came up in this era, they're very powerful voices for the most part. Frankie Lane, people like that, mm. who sung all of the, the kind of cowboy songs and westerns in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And who also did Blazing Saddles. Right. And he didn't know, Mel Brooks didn't tell him that it was a parody. Right. He just sort of, would it, so he did it at like his full gusto how did uh, he react when he found out? What I don't know. I'm not was. sure. I mean, uh, yeah, he. it's still on there, so I assume he wasn't, like, outraged. Yeah. But I wonder if he was kind of going like, yeah, this is a bit of a weird one. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, those, so those sorts of vocalists, because they came up in a time that was sort of either pre-amplification or when amplification was expensive and a bit unreliable, they were kind of very used to just filling a room with their voice almost operatically. Yeah, and there is a slight foghorn quality to both the male and female singers of this era. Certainly, yeah. Mm. And and there, we tried to 
I mean, uh, Christina Bianco is also an amazing impressionist. She so is. she can turn her voice to anything. And so uh, you two were very specifically trying to emulate that style. It's funny getting Christina to do this. Because <laughs> if you're not familiar with Christina's work, she's one of the finest singers in the country, probably. Uh, and getting her to sing this real stupid old cowboy song was kind of like... Crack. She's up for anything. She's though, up for she? anything, yeah. <laughs> She's great, Bianca. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, next we have Cold Heart Lake, which is another duet yes. with Christina, but this time she's playing Kirstine. Who is her main character in the series. Mm. And this is this is way down at the, the other end of Clay's career, so he's an, he's an old dude at this point. This song, I think, has just come out in the, the sort of timeline of, uh, of Mockery. So 95, 96. 95, yeah, it's a 90s kind of thing. And it's in the vein of those Nick Cave duets, really. Yeah, the Nick Cave, Kylie Minogue duet. He did one with, he did Where the Wild Roses Grow with Kylie and he did uh, Henry Lee with PJ Harvey on the same album, which is called Murder Ballads. And this is itself a murder ballad. So it, that's wearing its influence on its sleeve there. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's kind of a, a modern gothic country sound very big very cinematic uh very moody and dark and i remember that we talked about uh the fact that it was going to be playing a version of it was going to be playing in the ice rink because what i wanted was this contrast between this very moody song that's been given this treatment for this incredibly camp ice rink show yeah because uh, I thought that was a really funny contrast. In the end, I couldn't make it work. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I used some different music for the Cowboys on Ice show. Yeah. Because that just that was it was melting my brain trying to make that work. Yeah, yeah. Trying to make that into disco. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it could have been done, but it would. It sort of felt like this is work that probably no one's even going to be aware of. Yeah, and it wouldn't have sounded remotely like Cold Heart Lake, the original. No. So yeah. in the end, it just wasn't appropriate. Yeah. But. Uh, this is the thing, what I really like, one of the many things I really like about working with you on these is that you will throw things into the script that I wouldn't have thought of necessarily. And it doesn't matter if we don't always go for it in the end, but there are always a lot of really interesting prompts in the your script. The process is fun, isn't it? It is, definitely. Yeah. And so Cold Heart Lake, because it's uh, when Clay is in his 80s, I think, mm. at this point. 82. That, that he's uh, recorded this. So things happen to your voice as you get older. Yeah. They get obviously more gritty, uh, a little wobblier, yes. deeper. So with, with Cactus Lovers, I'm up in this kind of this sort of back of the throat kind of territory. And then by the time we get to Cold Heart Lake, I'm, I'm using my sort of almost Tom Waits range or, you know, the kind of Leonard Cohen, real deep and down in the grit of the throat like that. And I, I can't do it for too long. Mm. Um, I'm glad that he dies at the end of episode two, so I didn't have to do too much Clayton this series. I can get down there if I've got a cold, in fact. You I, can, I can get real deep. Real deep. <laughs> I quite enjoy that when it happens. It is fun. Yeah. So the next song we have is Four Spurs. Ah, yes. And an entire section of the park is uh, called Four Spurs. It's the town of Four Spurs. Mm. It's where the, the saloon is, is the Four Spurs saloon, isn't it? Where yeah. all the showdown happens. So the idea was, again, Claytonville is uh, set up a bit like a Disney park. So that in the in the centre, instead of the castle, there is the mine train. Yeah. And then it's got four lands around it. Mm. And one of them is a kind of main street. It's a recreation of, uh, well, it, it Walt's childhood home in Disney. And in this case, Clayton's childhood 
Well, he says uh, he says it's the town of Forsburgs. There, there it is. Yeah. You know, he even went to the. He, he even got the singing cactus. Yeah. All of that stuff. So he's looking around on stage, looking at bits of the park and that he recognises from so, his own songs. So tell us about the song Forsburgs. So Forsburgs is uh, it's styled as though it came out in the seventies. So it's got that kind of tight, sort of snappy, very dry, uh, very neat seventies production. Um, in in country terms, it's almost like a Kenny Rogers sound. Mm. I've even got that which is the beat that he used all the time on loads yeah. of things. Um, is this based on The Gambler? Kind of, yeah, among other things, yes. And it's it's got that... Uh, I'm, I'm slightly obsessed with The Gambler. You love The Gambler. It's a great song. Yeah. But yeah, the production-wise, it's certainly inspired by The Gambler. And the fact that it's like a sort of, let me tell you a tall tale, mm. you know, a little bit of a weird story as if it might be being told to someone via a guitar on a moving freight train in the middle of the night. That's the idea. It's a kind of a shaggy dog story about this this town where there's a, a drought and a mystic rides into town in, in a kind of Pied Piper way. She says, look, I can if you just give me a little bit of money and feed my horse, uh, you, I will solve your drought problem. I'll bring back water to your well. And so they agree, and she does that. Uh, and then the mayor refuses to pay her, and she goes, all right, fine. And she curses the town so that whenever the humans try to drink from the well, the water turns into sand, but the horses can still drink the water from the well. So eventually this becomes a town that's just entirely populated by horses. But and that's it, why it's four spurs, because they've got spurs on spurs each of their Yeah, because it turns into <laughs> almost like a sort of animal farm thing. Well, I, I'm picturing it as pure Gary Larson Farside. So they're like the Farside horses. Yeah, they got, they got the horses have cowboy hats on, they've got their spurs on. Yeah, well, in the end, that's, that's the final image, is like the town is just run as if it was run by humans, but... Yeah, they've run the banks and saloons and general stores, but it's oh, just horses. Great. And yeah. actually, that that came about because I wanted to insert Magenta and Bernard into this season. Yes. So I was like, why the hell would Magenta and Bernard be here? And uh, so Magenta is a, a psychic, a medium, a clairvoyant uh, from our other podcast. And I thought the idea of the sort of Western mystic was really nice and evocative. It is a thing, isn't it? The kind of the, the tarot lady in the back of the saloon. Yeah, yeah, drawing the death card, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, the idea that maybe Magenta was brought on in order to play the character, essentially, uh, that is in Clayton's Four Spurs song, <laughs> because all the places in Four Spurs are representations of his songs. Yeah. In fact, all of Claytonville is a representation of a song. So it makes sense that she would host the Four Spurs saloon yeah. and play the mystic, because she, she is also, already a mystic. She also has her seance experience is, uh, is a show in Claytonville, isn't it? Yes. Which she runs from the back of the saloon. Yeah, so in my head canon, she's gone to George, who runs the park, and... Uh, and who she already is the uh, medium for. Yes. And she's gone, oh, I can bring my own sort of tricks and things as well. We've got this wonderful thing we do where we uh, set up a seance, yeah. me and Bernard. So <laughs> shall we do that? We can do that and charge extra. Why don't we do that? Yeah. And yeah, so I think it evolved from actually deciding Magenta would be in the show. And then the Four Spurs song came from that. Yeah, but it, it completely rings true as the kind of song that you would get in that era of country. So, Winds of Heaven. Yes. So, this was the last one that I wrote. 
um, and it's the last one to appear in the series as well. And this is in the style of a lot of the times, particularly the older country stars would go through a very religious <laughs> phase and put out uh, an album of basically songs of praise. Um, so I, I bet they were a hit though. So there oh, might yeah. have been some cynicism. It might not just have been like, I love Jesus. It might have also been like every household in the oh, middle sure. America is going to sure. buy this album. Yeah, hugely popular, I imagine. But in, in order to make it sort of more relevant to the plot than just a hymn, this is actually a peculiar kind of love song disguised as a hymn. Because the, the main sort of refrain, let the winds of heaven dance between you, is from a poem written by... It's an American poet whose name I can't remember. Well, I originally got it from a bag of runes I got as a teenager. Right. So this is uh, magenta lore again. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I I bought a bag of runes and I remember one of them was uh, one of the runes was partnership, and it said, "Let the winds of heaven dance between you for a healthy relationship." And I remember thinking, aged sixteen not in a relationship I remember thinking oh yes yes good advice yes and so uh, when it came up that we were going to do this hymn essentially that phrase just occurred to me yes yeah, so the poet that originated this is Khalil Gibran I can't I'm not sure he pronounced it. I think that. this came after I talked about it didn't it as in you googled it after I went uh, talked about the winds of heaven yes yes I wasn't familiar with this but you said that and I looked up the origin of it and it comes from this right and it's a poem called On Marriage ah uh, and it's he was a, a American poet from the late 19th century, and yeah, one of the one of the lines in this is this is basically how to live a how to have a good marriage. <laughs> he says, "But let there be spaces in your togetherness, and let the winds of heaven dance between you." And and this hymn is playing in the Shotgun Wedding Chapel. Yes, which is kind of, kind of funny. The idea of there being a song that basically says. Don't tell your partner everything. <laughs> Playing in the background. Yeah, is that quite sounds fun. like a hymn. Sounds like it's a it's a, it's a Christian hymn. Yeah, but it's actually about marriage, and it's actually about hey, have you considered an open marriage? Because <laughs> <laughs> it was also supposed to reflect the relationship between Clay and Kirstine. Wasn't yes, it? who who have a, a an open marriage. an open marriage. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, and it's one of those things that's like. At its heart, at its essence, you can take a, a good message away from it, which is basically retain your individuality, isn't mm. it? Don't merge yourself into one entity just because you're married. All our ideas evolve over loads and loads of discussion, and that's why they, they seem quite layered, I think. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you talk about something and then you talk about it a bit more and that refers you to something else, and then you make a connection to this other thing, mm. and all of a sudden... One song is like a, a melting pot of several ideas. Yeah. And that's, I think, the benefit of living with your working partner mm. and being married. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we, yeah, we, we often have these ideas and I don't necessarily get around to writing the song until sometime later. So they, they can evolve quite naturally over time. Yeah. And of course, this, this bit here, where it's heard in the episode, is in the wedding chapel when Betty is talking to Abilene. And she says that she's there because she likes to hear Clay's voice all around her. So it's like 
he is like a god to her in a way. Yeah. And so he's he she's there to be kind of immersed in his glory. Yeah, she really has collapsed herself into the identity of Clay. Mm. So she has not let the winds of heaven dance between them. That's true. <laughs> That's very true. This is probably why we can never remember how things, you know, when people are like, oh, how did you come up with that? And we're like, bah, I don't know. <laughs> it's because there's so many kind of like little steps to it, isn't there? Yeah, there's not, not like one clear moment where we decide exactly how things are going to be a lot of the time. Yeah, I think this is why it falls out of our head. Mm. That's why it's good to discuss it, actually, isn't it? It's in the course of these kind of discussions that we go, oh, yeah, that's how we came up with it. Yeah, oh, yeah that's what happened. So you're hearing our basically learning process. Right? Yeah, that's why we keep correcting each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so finally, there's an untitled song. Oh yes, so this is this is Clayton's last and newest song, which he hasn't recorded. He hasn't even given it a name, and it's the song that he plays on stage just as the lights go out in the in the concert. And it's reflective of his confusion about what's happening. So, yes. Um, it, so he's he's uh, starting to piece together the fact that all of these illegitimate children. It doesn't make sense that they exist, and yet they are clearly his. Mm. Uh, and so there's something has happened that he can't quite get a handle on. Mm. And so th this is that's what this song is about. Yeah, so it goes, uh, Some days I feel like I'm sinking way down with all my regrets. Things I can't even remember, things I'd do well to forget. Yeah, so he feels a sense of responsibility for these things, but he also doesn't understand how they even happen. So it's like feeling responsible for something that you have no memory of. And actually, as an ex-alcoholic, that, that's reflective of a genuine struggle that he has with things he did that might have hurt the people around him. Mm. So he doesn't know whether to blame himself, He, but there's quite a lot of shame all wrapped up in this as well. Yeah, so it's a very sad song, um, and which is why... Betty's going, oh dear, uh, around listening. And what he is starting to do is, especially as he gets older, he's starting to doubt his own mind. And so he says, uh, you, the, he lists a bunch of things that you can, you can trust. Uh, and then he says, but you can't trust your memories or the folks that you know. You can't trust a damn thing in this whole crazy show. But most of all, I know now you can't trust and then the lights come off. <laughs> and Which, what is it? What well, is uh, I mean, I know, I know in my mind what it is. Uh, well, tell us, come on. Uh, your own mind is basically what he was getting at. But obviously, we—he's already said that, though. He's you, repeating himself. No, he hasn't said that yet. You just said you can't trust your. You can't your, trust your memories. Yeah. Or the folks that you know. Yeah. Can't trust a damn so thing. So he was just—he really can't trust his own. Well, he's—he's he's he's forgetting he's it, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> he's an old man. <laughs> I thought we had something else in mind. No, no, that was what it is. That's the essence of the song. Oh, okay. Oh, yes. I because we make this. it sound as if he's about to say something, some big yes, bombshell. Yes, that's it. So it sounds so that because one of the things we wanted was for people to go, oh, he was about to reveal something, and someone thought, oh, he can't reveal this, so they turned off all the electricity so that he wouldn't reveal it to the crowd. Yes. And who is that person? That must be the the murderer, but that's a red herring. It's a red herring because mm. they didn't know at what point he was going to be at during his performance. They probably didn't even know he was going to sing that song yeah. in reality. Yeah. But yeah, that's a that's a little. Uh, I have a massive table where I put all the clues and all the red herrings and I figured out how to dribble them into each episode because uh, the rate of exposure of clues and red herrings, you've got to be careful. Yeah, you, you don't want to... You can't do it all at once. <laughs> yeah, because you have got to tread this really difficult line with a mystery of making it so that when the killer is revealed, 
you it's sort of a revelation. You might have just started to figure it out, but it's pretty new. Uh, so you don't want to make it too easy. You don't want to make it too hard. Yeah. You don't want it to come out of nowhere. You don't want it to be like, that character? Really? What? Yeah. I barely noticed them. Because, you know, sometimes it's the one who's kept it quite quiet the whole time mm. and hasn't been given a personality, essentially. And then, and then you find out and then you go, okay. Oh, right, them. Oh, oh they were a secret child, were they? Right. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you also don't want it to be... You don't want people figuring out in episode two because then they've got then why would they listen to the rest of it, you know? Yeah. Especially if there's... I mean, you'd listen to the rest of it if you figured it out in, let's say, episode eight, mm. just to confirm whether you were right or not. Mm-hmm. But you figure it out too early, and you're like, oh, I'm not wading through all that just to see if I'm right or not. Mm. Although you might, yeah, you might, but, you know, if it's then confirmed that you ha- were right in episode two, that's rubbish. You'd feel a sense of real disappointment. Well, an interesting thing about this series as well is in episode one... JJ and Parker actually reveal the correct answer <laughs> and they don't even know it Yeah. at that point because it's actually before Clay's even been murdered. Mm. It's quite interesting because they see Fennec and they go, oh God, why, why is he here? He, he, he must be here because he hates us and he's come to take the park down. He'd say, take us down by any means necessary. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> but because it's presented as this like far-fetched panic, panic like, thing. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like paranoia as well, doesn't yeah. it? And uh, then Fennec reveals himself to be uh, what we see is a very reasonable guy. Yeah. He's actually full of integrity and just wants to get to the bottom of things. But, you know, uh, not to get to the bottom of the mockery uh, mystery, but to get to the bottom of who hurt Clay. That's, that's the journey that we're supposed to go and on. He, and as he says, you know, he spent all of this time building up a security firm only to have his most famous uh, client ever die on his watch. It's pretty plausible. Yeah, so he goes, so Betty goes, so you're motivated by revenge. And he goes, oh, yes, very yeah. much so. Well, what I wanted to do is basically, essentially, yeah, reveal what people might figure out to be his motivation in episode one, because then they'd think... Well, that's it's not going to be that, is it? Mm. Because you don't tell everyone what the underlying motivation is in episode one. So you really double bluffed the audience. Yeah, there. it's double bluff. It's all psychology in it. Mm. <laughs> manipulation. Ho ho! Aren't we clever? <laughs> well, I I, I uh, watched a lot of uh, TV detectives, and yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, that's how you do it. I mean, I've always been unpicking these things anyway when I watch them. I'm like. Why is that unsatisfying or why is that satisfying? And then I kind of work backwards and go, oh, it's because of that. Mm. And there's lots of different ways of doing this. There's like there's the Columbo method where... Well, that's a really unusual That method. is unusual to reveal the answer at the very beginning and then watch him figure it out. It's not even a how done it because some things are a who done it and some things are a how done it. Well, yeah. we're told exactly who did it and how done it right at the beginning. Yeah. So it's more a let's watch Columbo be clever. It's a how solve it. Yeah, yeah. How nail him. Yeah, or her. <laughs> the, the same is true of that series, Poker Face, with Natasha Leon. You see what happens at the beginning, don't you? Yeah. You don't necessarily know the why, the full context of what's going on. She's in danger as well, so they've added a, a little bit more tension by always making it like, oh, oh, is she going to get caught by the the the, the bigger arc? Yes. You know, the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. guys from Las Vegas. Yeah. Oh, oh, is the killer actually going to try and get rid of her? I mean, yeah. not no, 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 because the there's an entire season she needs to stay alive. But they've added a little bit of jeopardy. But yeah, the likes of any Agatha Christie and things like that, it's really interesting to figure out why it's a satisfying answer when you finally find out who done it yeah. and how done it. 
Okay, so uh, final question or penultimate. Mm-hmm. What's been your favourite musical or sound discovery this season? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, the most interesting thing to me is the real kind of rediscovery of the guitar that I've had mm. this season. Um, because, you know, I've played guitar forever. I've always included guitar in, in scores uh, a bit. But obviously with this having a sort of slightly vintage country feel on one hand and a sort of vintage style of scoring in the other is kind of the sound of westerns is basically that sort of 1960s Ennio Morricone sound. Both of those are very guitar-driven genres, so I've been looking at the guitar a lot more during this series and kind of not having so much synth work. But for quite a long time, I've just been, for convenience sake, plugging my guitar straight into the computer, essentially, and using software to emulate different sounds. That's what I, as a kind of jack-of-all-trades composer, have been doing for a long time. But for this, I thought it's so important that actually let's try and do a more authentic guitar sound. So I've been plugging into uh, pedals and also a, a real tube amplifier, a proper guitar amp. So a tube amp is like the original, isn't it? Yeah, so basically the mo- the huge majority of the, the sort of higher-end guitar amps uh, are, have vacuum tubes in them. So that's a, an older technology which is still considered to be the, the best-sounding instrument amps for sure. Um, and that's what they would have all been using back in the day. And it, it sounds just great. There's, it's kind of hard to put your finger on why it sounds so much better than than uh, solid state, in my opinion. Mm. You know, this is all preference and, and whatnot, but certainly the sound of these uh, instrumentations and songs, they would have been using valve amps, um, tube amps. It's the, it's the same thing with different different name. Um, and so plugging my guitar into a tube amp, which I've never actually had a tube amp before, but I got one recently for this, and the the difference that it makes to my guitar sound it just comes alive it sings and it sounds gnarly and and fat and rich but also like cuts through nicely and and it's just it's really kind of made me fall in love with the guitar again in a quite a fun way and so obviously so much of that uh comes through in the score because I, i'm enjoying the sound of it so fennec has this kind of kind of real spaghetti western uh, noirish guitar that cuts through all the time and it just sounds so great. The meeting of spaghetti western and noir detective is kind of interesting. It is interesting and you wouldn't necessarily think that those two genres would go together but they're, they're they're both very moody genres with a lot of slow introspective kind of uh, story storylines and, and, and themes. Um, and yeah, so I've given Betty as part of her orchestration quite a lot of sort of detective-y noir sounds. So the, the cymbalum uh, is a, a Russian string instrument that's got that kind of Tinker Tailor soldier spy kind of 1960s feel. It's that it's the instrument that plays her theme in the, the Betty Tapes theme tune. It's a sort of plucked from Russia with love sounding thing. Uh, and so that is like a slightly old-fashioned British spy thing, which sort of suits her vibe. Yeah. yeah, because she's learned a lot, as as is observed. She's learned everything she knows from watching TV. And so she's absorbed a lot of these old kind of espionage thrillers. Well, I really should have written that she was watching 
an espionage thriller on the telly and not Bogan Bay. Instead of Bogan Bay. <laughs> yeah. But we were all watching Australian soaps in the 90s. Originally, you, you had this idea that Bogan Bay would be how she solves some I did. of it. We were going to have it. I was going to have a, a parallel situation in Bogan Bay. And I wrote it. I wrote uh, what that parallel situation was that made her go, oh, my goodness. Just like Jason discovered, you know, yeah. um, uh, Darlene was doing X, Y, and Z. Didn't you have it that he, like, pulled an insurance scam by burning down the bar or something? Yeah, but they, that wasn't actually... Yeah, it was uh, a crime that actually looks like it's for one purpose when in fact it's for a completely different purpose. I see, yeah. And so she was going to go, oh, that's what this is. Clay's murder isn't wasn't to kill just to kill Clay. It was actually to do this completely other thing. Yeah. So a we were going to have thing. we were going to have more instances of Bogan Bay, weren't we originally? Yeah. We should be watching the episodes at certain points. But it just slowed it down. <laughs> I had so, uh, yeah, I couldn't keep inserting what looks like a completely unnecessary Australian soap. So we did just have one <laughs> one instance of Bogan Bay. But that's all right, because that really says uh, Betty is mainly sat in her office watching the telly yeah. instead of actually doing any detective work. Because mm -hmm. what I also wanted was for us to underestimate Betty. Yes. So that later on... As, in fact, Fennec does. Yeah. He yeah. says, you just you just stay picking your nose and watching Australian soaps. Yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. It's the Columbo thing. Underestimate yeah. them at your peril. Because although, because in the same way that Columbo has his shuffly kind of, oh, I'm sorry to bother you, I don't want to, all of that thing, Betty has her sort of seeming just very scatty, doesn't she? She well, jump, yeah. her, her mind leaps around like a flea on a trampoline. That's yeah, what yeah. I'm kind of basing it on how my mind works <laughs> <laughs> and how underestimated I am. <laughs> so she disarms her interviewees by asking questions in what appears to be a sort of illogical order. Yeah. So it looks like uh, it's come out of nowhere and it's been given no thought. But in fact, it's just because she's making connections. And it's also a way of uh, of springing something on them so they don't have time to think. Yeah, they're blindsided. And so they just answer without, mm. without uh, covering their tracks. Yeah, she particularly does it with Anna Lou. Yeah. She's kind of quite, she's quite harsh with Anna Lou, really. Yeah, she also is quite kind of vulgar and blunt as a way, because she knows that's going to make Anna Lou blush and get scatty and perhaps reveal something that she wouldn't have otherwise revealed. Yes, it's an interesting detective, mm, Betty. Yeah. Chaotic in her approach, but actually she's got her own methods that do work. Yeah, and there is a naivety to her, though, which is why it all falls apart in, episode, in the last episode for yeah. her. So she has to use her wiles. Yeah. To, to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we're talking about writing. We're not talking about writing. Well, I think we can make this writing and music. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Lawrence, where can I get the album? Although I have the album. It's in our studio. <laughs> but where can other people get the album? You can go to longcatmedia.bandcamp.com and it will be right there. Why do we use Bandcamp? Because it's a great service um, that gives a huge chunk of the takings to the artists it's fully independent it works really well it's great for the listeners as well because there's an app you can download and you can just stream it like you would stream anything else uh, but it means we're not giving horrible mega corporations loads of money and it directly supports the podcast yes because every purchase of the album helps to helps us to continue making audio drama that's true 
Yeah, especially as uh, uh, this year's grant applications have uh, not been accepted <laughs> and have all turned to dust. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, we do really appreciate your support, oh, folks. Yeah, yeah, and if you don't, uh, if you can't purchase the album or uh, support us in any other way, another excellent way to support us is to spread the word. Mm-hmm. So, and weirdly, this seems best achieved on Reddit because Reddit's got a lot of audio drama chat on it. Yeah, the, if you if you fancy, yeah, just dropping onto the Reddit uh, audio drama subreddit, there's loads of good chat there, and people mm-hmm. recommend things. So you you'll pick up some good good recommendations from other people as well. But we always appreciate a shout out. Yeah, we don't hang around on there. Like we're not being weird, pervy people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, don't, we don't police it. No, but we're aware it exists because sometimes, like uh, one of our actors or something, will send us, uh, "Hey, someone said something really nice on Reddit." Yes. But yeah, there's no way for my own mental health I would hang out on that Reddit <laughs> just in case if someone said something a bit like mean. Yeah. <laughs> it, it would haunt me. So. Yeah. But but yeah, but it is a way for other people, audio drama uh, aficionados, to discover audio dramas. So if you go on there and you're like, oh, I like Mockery Manor for these reasons, then that might actually drive some traffic towards our. our and podcast. people will probably recommend you some good stuff if you like our show. Then you'll probably enjoy these other shows as that's well. That's true. Very true. Okay, so I think that's it for this year's Kiss My Zeitgeist. Uh, so from from me and from Lawrence, thank you and good night. <laughs> Take care. Good night by the album. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. In the year 1889, there was nowhere in the world more exciting than London, England. Three cheers for Inspector Lestrade and the bad boys of Baker Street themselves, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. John Watson! Solved by Sherlock Bloody Holmes of 221B Baker Street. Well, with any luck, we'll get a new brutal murder any day now. God, I wish. It's truly shocking you haven't solved anything in five years. The boys are both out of town for some case about a dog in Dartmoor this weekend. Sincerely, Martha Hudson. London's number two detective team just became number one. Fox and Stallion. Find us on Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr at 224BBaker or on our website 224BBaker.com. It's like they say, big breaks are 90% luck. What's the other 10%? Luck.